a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Let's get this started, shall we? This is a place where we gather to revel in wrong think. And what I mean by that is we simply challenge the prevailing narratives of our day and make up our own minds as to what is real and what isn't. Now, I know that means, well, that sounds pretty subjective, you know. <laughs> who are you to determine what reality is? Now, I would, I would actually ask the question, who are they, meaning the uh, narrative managers, to tell you what reality is? Really? It's your mind. And I'm not telling you that you must agree with me, therefore you're no longer connected to reality. All I'm suggesting is there are a lot of forces out there that are trying to distract us, mislead us, or even just actively prevent us from seeing what is truth, what is real. My job is to uh, help clear away some of that fog and at least give you a vantage point or multiple vantage points from which to assess the situation and make up your own mind. So... If these terms are agreeable, let's continue. I'm glad to have you here. By the way, I have great sponsors who make this show possible. They include Dixie Chiropractic. You can access them at DixieChiro.com, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. I think there's uh, pretty much every day, As I sit down and I prepare my show notes and I'm thinking about, okay, what can I talk about? I'm always looking for what would be of greatest value. And there's some days where it's like, man, there is so much just craziness going on that that I worry. I'm just sitting here complaining or or, or worse than that, that I'm sharing this stuff with you from the standpoint of someone who's just like, are you seeing this too? I'm not imagining this, right? This is is what's really playing out in front of us. I guess what I'm admitting is there are times when I doubt my own sanity just because of the intense um, chaos that's going on around us. And and it seems to be, you know, building. And that's that seems pretty daunting. So I want to just take a little bit of a side journey here for a moment. And and I'm, I'm speaking to those who recognize clearly that something's going on, something that things are not, you know, going exactly as they should be and all is well. I know there are some people who can maintain, what? Well, there's nothing nothing here that concerns us. It's, it's the meme of the dog sitting there in a burning, you know, restaurant with flames all around him with a cup of coffee in front of him, and he's saying, this is fine. <laughs> it's not fine. And I think we all recognize that. But if we're just sitting there wringing our hands or just complaining about what we see, what are we really accomplishing? I'm, I'm asking this more of myself than I am of you, but... Do you see the difference? It's, it's, it's not enough just to identify society's problems. Anybody can do that. Any heckler can sit there and point out, nah, you know, this is, this is what I see that's wrong. You can sit there and make cat calls from the sidelines all you want. However, if you are serious about being a problem solver, you've got to get on the field. And this is where I find a lot of people struggle because it's, well, what can I do? The thinking of our time is so dominated by politics that 
for a lot of people, they feel like, well, you know, I just maybe I need to run for office. And we need good people in office. But at the same time, we also need to lessen our dependence on the state, including elected office, to mitigate the various problems around us. I've got an article here in front of me from Ron Ross. This was published on Intellectual Takeout. No, it wasn't. It was AmericanThinker.com. Sorry. They're both great sites, but I want to send you to the right place. And there is a link to this article in my show notes. The one place where you can really make a difference is the title of this article. And he starts by invoking Jordan Peterson's sixth rule of life. Set your own house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Now, Ron Ross says, you determine your life primarily by the choices you make. Some choices are meta choices, ones that impact numerous other choices. And one of the meta choices is what share of your time you devote to your micro realm versus your macro realm. Now, the micro realm of our lives includes family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, those with whom we directly interact, as well as your job and other personal uses of your time. The macro part of our lives, that includes society at large, the economy, climate change, politics, people distant from you, and people you don't know. Now, Ron Ross asks, in which of these two realms, micro or macro, do you want to live? And he says, keep in mind, you have a limited amount of time and energy. Whichever realm you choose has what economists call an opportunity cost. Now, the MIT Dictionary of Modern Economics defines opportunity cost like this. Perhaps the most fundamental concept in economics, the opportunity cost of an action is the value of the foregone alternative. That's a great definition. Ron Ross says there's an enormous difference regarding the level of control you have in these two spheres. Obviously, you have the most influence and impact on those closest to you. And influence is like gravitational force inversely proportional to the square of the distance. Also consider the relative populations. You're a significant part of your micro world. Like it or not, you're a tiny and insignificant part of your macro world. Now he says there's also a big difference in your relative knowledge about the two realms. Your macro realm is vastly more complex than your micro realm, and the choices you make there are more prone to error. We all know people who have strong opinions concerning issues they know almost nothing about. Half the time I think that's me, by the way. Ron Ross says virtually all your power resides in your micro realm. The person closest to you is yourself. So focusing on a small sphere of influence is an aspect of individual responsibility. It's a way of thinking and behaving that shows the difference between progressives and conservatives. Conservatives love being personally responsible. That's part of the price of freedom. Unfortunately, individual responsibility is just too big a burden for some people. Personal problems are often too difficult or too painful to face, and to focus instead on an urgent macro issue is a favorite self-deluding tactic of progressives. Kind of like systemic racism, right? They see it everywhere, in everyone. Injustice. They can spot it a mile away, except in themselves. Funny how that works. Ron Ross says their selected macro issue is typically one dire enough to blind them to the cost of hiding from themselves. It enables them to deny the high opportunity cost to themselves of neglecting their own unsolved 
personal problems. Now, that's it. That's pretty much it. That's straight up. There's your, you know, 1,000 milligrams of red pill. But I want to unpack this just a little bit further. And, and I want to do this because I believe you are a problem solver, and I certainly want to be a problem solver as well. I think there's great wisdom in what Ron Ross has written here. And it starts with real leadership. Starts with, with using your influence as wisely as you can wherever you happen to be at the moment. I'm guessing most of us don't have a big, you know, prominent national stage that's well lit and, you know, well covered by the media or for that matter, even, you know, negatively covered by the media. Nope. But we do have very distinct spheres of influence. And I agree with him entirely that the, the, the most powerful sphere of influence we have starts with ourself and then extends out to the people who are closest to us. And then the circle grows a little bit wider. With, uh, within our home, within our neighborhood, within our, our church community, within our, our actual community. You see how that works. But I also like his point that getting yourself in order first is a necessity. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be perfect. You have to be absolutely beyond reproach. But at some level, could we not agree that maybe this means getting yourself squared away to the point where you at least know who you are and you know what you stand for. It just seems like that would be a very helpful position to start from with the understanding. You can't lift someone any higher than you yourself happen to be. If you're trapped in a pit, trapped by habits, whatever it may be, you're not going to be able to help people. You know, if, if, you're, if you yourself are, are stuck. I hope this doesn't sound like I'm being patronizing because, I, like I said, this is, this is as much a message for me as it is for anybody. But if we focus first on getting our own hearts in order, and by that I mean, you know, understanding who we are, what it is that we actually believe in strongly enough that it, it would motivate how we act and what we do on a daily basis. Start there. Watch that influence spread to the people closest to you. And as they they get it together, you'll see that influence continue to spread. It's like ripples in a pond. You'll know you're doing it right when you see people starting to come to you looking for advice. And it's not because you're all that in a bag of chips. It's because they see that you're actively trying to take that responsibility. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us. Now, look, my message of liberty has been consistent, as you know, if you have been listening for uh, the many years that, that I've been doing this program. Um, I love the message of liberty. And, and this is why when I'm around people who embrace uh, libertarianism, I always feel a little bit more at home. And I'm very happy to welcome Dr. C. Ronald Kimberling, who is one of the editors of a remarkable book that I've had the opportunity to read called Libertarianism. Uh, this is John Hosper's The Libertarian Party's 50th Anniversary and Beyond. Um, Dr. Kimberling, I'm first of all glad to have you on the show. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, and then let's let's talk a little bit about libertarianism itself. I hate to admit this, but I didn't even realize the 50th anniversary had come and gone. 
Yeah. Well, thank you, Brian. And, and please just call me Ron. Uh, but uh, my own saga was my student days. I started college way back in 1967. And that was the time of, you know, student riots and major protests and things like that. Uh, I became active in the Young Americans for Freedom, which is a conservative group started by uh, William F. Buckley at his home in Sharon, Connecticut in 1960. Uh, but many of us, particularly those of us who lived in California, started reading more about the libertarian philosophy and, uh, you know, searching for a government that got back to the original principles of the Constitution. Uh, you know, Richard Nixon... Uh, was president from 69 to 74, and Nixon did certain things. He, he started the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, he imposed wage and price controls, which hadn't been imposed since World War II, and a lot of other things that those of us who were in favor of free markets and free mines, we could not stomach that. So we kind of broke away and started a bunch of libertarian groups, and they're all, you know, they're in a chapter in the book on the, it's called Flowers in Our Hair, <laughs> <laughs> kind of an homage to the 60s. Uh, but I was part of that movement. And, uh, you know, uh, I got my Ph.D. at USC, uh, actually in English, uh, not in political science, remained politically active. I supported Ronald Reagan. In fact, there's an interview with Reagan in this book, and he specifically states, this is back in 1975, specifically states that libertarianism is the heart and soul of conservatism. People ought to read that essay. So I, I worked for Reagan. I got uh, appointed to a political position in 1981 uh, in the U.S. Department of Education, and I rose through you know, several political appointments. I became assistant secretary for higher ed, which uh, is the the highest ranking federal official for colleges and universities. And uh, I detail in the book, uh, in one chapter, some suggestions for how to abolish the Department of Ed. That's what I went there to do, and we didn't accomplish it uh, for a number of reasons. But it's still a worthwhile goal, I think. Uh, you know, Phil Crane was a congressman from the Chicago suburbs for many, many years. He was known as a conservative, but he was very libertarian in his views. And I remember hearing Phil Crane say the federal government should be reduced to four cabinet agencies, the Department of Defense, the Department of the Treasury, the Department of State for Foreign Relations, and the Justice Department, period. Everything else, let's abolish. Let's figure out, you know, why we either don't need them or do it on the state level. So anyway, uh, yeah, the idea for this book, uh, Brian, is that the 50th anniversary was coming up of two very salutary events uh, in, in libertarian history. One was the 50th anniversary of the publication of a, a book with the simple title Libertarianism, uh, a Political Philosophy for Tomorrow. That was written by Professor John Hospers, who was the head of the philosophy department at the University of Southern California, and major, major work of political philosophy. Uh, it sold millions of copies and still in print. Um, and as a result of that and other act activities, 
the Libertarian Party was created uh, formally in Colorado in December of 1971, and John Hospers became the first Libertarian candidate for president. Now, they were only on the ballot in a couple of states, but uh, surprisingly, Hospers got one electoral vote. So it's a footnote in history. Uh, there was a Nixon elector from Virginia named Roger McBride who didn't like the things Nixon was doing, uh, felt that he had strayed from the Constitution and free market, and uh, he voted for Hospers. He also voted for Hospers' running mate, a woman named Tony Nathan. She was the first woman and the first Jew to get an electoral vote in history. And the party has uh, lasted more than 50 years. Uh, it's the largest third party in the country. It's been on the ballot in all 50 states in the last two elections. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it looks like it's here to stay. Uh, Let me pose a quick question to you, Ron, because I I know that the, a criticism I commonly hear from conservative corners is, well, if if libertarianism is so great, how come they aren't winning more elections? And I'd like to have you comment to to the idea that success can be defined in more than just simply putting people into office, can it? I mean, my my love of freedom directly stems from my interactions with libertarians who. Put, who took me under their wing along the way and helped me on my journey to to discover, you know, why the, the non-aggression principle and why personal liberty are superior ways to live life. But it didn't take somebody getting elected for me to make that connection. Right. Well, I, th I think there's two or three uh, reasons. Uh, one is that the Libertarian Party has grown, particularly in the last decade, in elected officials. There are currently more than 300 elected libertarians around the country. Now, most of those are local offices, but you, you have to start somewhere. And you have to get experience somewhere. Uh, there's a state legislator in um, Michigan. Uh, I'm sorry, not Michigan, Wyoming. <laughs> and he's had a very, very powerful influence. In fact, he is a minority party caucus of one, but he works well with Democrats on issues that uh, there's alignment between the libertarian viewpoint and their viewpoint. He works well with Republicans when there's alignment uh, there. So I think what's, what I see happening is that things have gotten so polarized with the, with the major parties. And libertarianism represents a, a third alternative. And, you know... I think there were about half a dozen states in the 2020 election where the libertarian presidential candidate, Joe Jorgensen, uh, won sufficient votes that it made the difference between whether Biden or Trump won that state. So I think the influences starting off at the local level and with kind of a wedge influence and uh, more and more, I think, if if independents who are about a third of the voters in the United States uh, decide that uh, libertarianism is the true independent philosophy in politics, that it's going to grow more. Uh, Ron, is there a way to sum up libertarianism? I mean, I don't usually speak in bumper sticker slogans, but if there's a central idea to libertarianism, what would that be? 
uh, people should have the freedom to do anything they want so long as it's peaceful and doesn't interfere with somebody else's freedom. And, you know, years ago they used to say libertarians believed that uh, the government should stay out of the boardroom and out of the bedroom. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's you – know. there doesn't need to be much more. I mean, that's that's a great philosophy to begin with. Unfortunately, a lot of people still are in the process of learning why it's, it's a very viable way of seeing the world. We have to take a very quick commercial break again. My guest is Dr. C. Ronald Kimberling. We will be back to talk with Ron. We're going to talk about some specific essays within this book, and I think you'll be surprised at uh, the variety of voices that also have embraced the libertarian ideal. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, I'm visiting today with Dr. C. Ronald Kimberling, and we're talking about a book which he co-edited along with Stan Oliver called Libertarianism, John Hosper's The Libertarian Party's 50th Anniversary and Beyond. And, and Ron, I'd like to take some time to just to, to, to talk about the book itself. This is not, you know, just it's not this is not a pamphlet. There's some very serious food for thought in here. But what could a person expect to find if they pick up this book and start reading? What are they going to encounter? OK, well, the book basically has five parts. So the first part are uh, former students of Professor Hosper's and their memories of him as as a professor, as a teacher. It's just, again, celebrating the 50th anniversary of his book on libertarianism. Uh, so that that was the first thing. Then there's uh, a series of essays that provide a bit of history of libertarianism. Now, this is not the comprehensive textbook, okay? So you've got quite a bit of variety. You've got one of my former students, uh, Louise Hitchcock, is a professor of anthropology in Australia, and she wrote about the sea faring people in ancient uh, Mediterranean times during the, uh, during the Bronze Age who were uh, free traders. And they weren't making war. They were, they were trading. But it goes there. It uh, talks about uh, 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 there's an interview with Ronald Reagan conducted in 1975 in Reason magazine. He had just left the governorship before running for president. There's a very interesting essay on the Rohrbacher-Farr Amendment, which uh, was passed uh, a few years back. And it forbids the Justice Department and the federal government from interfering in state decisions when it comes to uh, legalization of marijuana, particularly. Well, actually, this act was uh, medical marijuana. Uh, so there's there's a smattering of, of different articles. Then there's uh, histories of the Libertarian Party, including the first call to action to create a Libertarian Party in 1971 by David F. Nolan, who was the founder of the party. Then the fourth, uh, the fourth uh, section of the book is called Libertarian Perspectives. And those are some of those interesting essays that you alluded to, uh, some stuff about how the government's messed up the COVID response. Uh, there's uh, uh, immigration uh, essays. Um, and uh, the former uh, 
presidential candidate in 2020 of the Libertarian Party, Joe Jorgensen, Dr. Joe Jorgensen, uh, talks about building a truly free market in healthcare. And then finally, there's a section kind of looking at what the future of the Libertarian Party might be. And it includes uh, a chapter on uh, slashing the, the ballot access laws that prohibit third parties from, from running candidates, uh, how the Libertarian Party can make alliances with both the left and the right, uh, and, and a few other things. So it's, it's chock full of nuts, I guess, would be the way to describe it. Speaking of nuts, and I, I say that tongue-in-cheek here, um, I was yes. actually happy to see commentator Glenn Beck has an essay in their open letter to James Madison. And I only point this out because I know that a lot of people within my audience very much resonate with Glenn Beck, um, especially my, my Southern Utah listening audience. Uh, you know, I, I affectionately refer to him as Brother Beck for, for reasons that they would understand. But um, there, uh, Oh, I understand. <laughs> there's, there's a very... Libertarianism is not nearly as dogmatic or, or narrowly focused as the other two parties. But, Ron, it seems like the other two parties always seem to have the advantage when it comes to actually securing um, elected positions in, in government. Why is it that they have this advantage? Well, just, just one example, and I don't have the exact statistics, but let's say that you're trying to run for uh, a, a seat in the House of Representatives in the state I live in, Illinois. Um, if you are seeking the nomination of a major party and getting your name on a, a primary ballot, uh, you need about 5,000 signatures. If you are seeking the nomination and ballot access from a third party, you need about 25,000. So it takes time, money, effort, cost, you know, to get all of those signatures. That's just one example of the kind of barriers they put up. Uh, but, but there's a lot of them. Well, uh, it, it seems like the system, the system very carefully allows you just enough of a choice that it doesn't actually have to change anything about itself, regardless of whether it's a Democrat or a Republican who wins. And so I think that's a that's a compliment to libertarians and, and even to other third parties, but um, especially, you know, to the Libertarian Party. It seems to pose a real threat in the sense that if if people are interested in something more than just the status quo of big government getting bigger and taking more control in our lives, you have alternatives, but there are some significant barriers to get past. You do. And I, I think there are some uh, elections, uh, and this would be good targeting for the Libertarian Party, uh, where it's pretty much a one-party district, whether it's a Democratic district or a Republican district. It's so strongly one party, many times the other party doesn't even choose to run a candidate. Well, you know, if Libertarians run for those offices and they make a pitch for, number one, the support of the people who otherwise would have voted for the other party. <laughs> so let's say hypothetically it's a Democratic district and through and through. You, you make a pitch that there's a lot of common ground with the Republicans, particularly in economics and the size of government and, and that kind of thing. And then you go after the independent voters who, you know, an independent point of view really leans toward libertarian. Well, you might put together a coalition of those two that actually outpoll 
the, the major party candidate running in that dominant district. I think that's a strategy for the Libertarian Party to go for. There's an essay in the book by Mary Ruart, Why a Libertarian World is Inevitable. Now, I have to tell you, that that actually struck a note of optimism in my soul. I was like, ah, it, it, this is a, liberty is a great idea, that that idea that people should be free to do anything peaceful that does not infringe on others. Um, that should be the key to a better, more prosperous world. Tell me, in your opinion, Ron, um, how how likely are we to see the world to move toward that? Right now, things are not looking very hopeful in, in some respects. Well, I'm I'm optimistic about one aspect of this uh, current war in, in the Ukraine, and that is uh, nations that believe in uh, – they'll use the term democracy, but basically where there are more uh, freedoms given to individual citizens than you find in autocracies uh, – that dialogue has resumed, and I haven't heard that kind of a dialogue since, you know, 60s or 70s. Um, so I, I think that's helping. I think, you know, COVID has given people isolation and time to rethink their positions and, and change their mind on things. Um, so it's, I'm, a, it's I'm also given optimistic. us it's given us a very clear example of what uh, too much government might look like. You know, hypo- Amen. hypothetically. Amen. <laughs> and, and, you know, Mary has another chapter in the book that talks about that. Uh, now, this book was was written during the earlier uh, phase of the pandemic, but she has a uh, doctorate in biomedical research. She has had significant interaction with the FDA over the years, and uh, she's highly critical uh, of the FDA and the way that they – have handled the the COVID situation. Let's take a moment here. We got about ninety seconds left. Let's talk about the book, where it's available. Um, where would you direct people if they're interested in getting their hands on this book? The publisher is called Jameson Books. J A M E S O N. People could Google that and order it from their website, or they could just go on uh, Amazon and uh, look it up. Uh, just enter libertarianism, John Hospers, the Libertarian Party's 50th anniversary and beyond. That's a long title. They could try my name, C. Ronald Kimberling, and uh, it might pop up there. Uh, and they can they can buy it on Amazon or they could buy it from the publisher. Are there any issues? We're down to about our last minute here. But are there any issues or any uh, political races that you're particularly keeping an eye on, which could prove uh, to to show that uh, libertarianism is is in fact uh, you know uh, an idea whose time has come i'm keeping my eye on the state legislative races in the state of wyoming i mentioned earlier that there is a an elected libertarian in the uh in the wyoming legislature but they're actually running a set of candidates and targeting specific legislative seats uh, with the hope that uh, they can increase that number from one to four, five, six, and and just have a real presence in Wyoming. And Wyoming is a state that leans toward liberty anyway. Uh, you know, it's the good old West. Ron, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for your time, and thanks for a wonderful read in this book. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to Sewing and Quilting Center.com. Now, they are located in St. George, Utah, but if you are someone who is in the market for a sewing machine, embroidery machine, long arm quilting machine, these are the folks I would send you to. And if it's not you, you probably know someone who is, is into uh, utilizing these skills. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com would like me to remind you that this Friday, actually today and uh, tomorrow, April 8th and 9th at the Dixie Center in St. George, there is a quilt show being put on by the Dixie Quilt Guild. Now, you can go and you can appreciate quilts. That's fine. But you could also get your hands on a handy quilter long arm quilting machine at no charge and see how it does. In other words, they have four of them set up there. So if you want to, you know, put it to the test, see how they work, you can actually get a summarized hands-on demonstration and also get the best prices of the year. Now, if you can't make it to the Dixie Center, go visit their store on Bluff Street in St. George for amazing two-day-only prices. It's time to get the machine that you've been dreaming of. And I'm just going to throw this out there, too. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, a sewing machine is a doomsday item. But if you're serious about your self-reliance, it's probably something that you should add to your tools and to your skills of being able to repair or even manufacture your own clothing. And they fix the old machines. They teach people how to use nearly every machine made for home use, even the competition's machines. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. There's a link in the show notes. Check it out. You'll appreciate it. They'll appreciate hearing from you. So as much as it feels like COVID mania has passed, this is not the time to be popping champagne corks. I've got an article here from offguardian.com. This is from Todd Hyen. And it's a very clear, dispassionate look at what they got and what we lost. And I guess the bottom line here is we still have some heavy lifting ahead of us. Todd Hayen says, stop the party, folks. It's not over until the fat lady sings. And she's only taken a break. Now, he says, I've written about this premature euphoria several times, warning that we really haven't won a thing, not even one battle, until some heads roll. There are no rolling heads to be seen, not even a cursory fall guy having his career destroyed due to all the blame thrown his way. Now, he says, I thought at first Fauci was going to get this honor with his mysterious disappearance as a precursor to his public fall from grace. But he says, I was wrong. He's only off somewhere private to lick his wounds, assuming he even considers himself wounded which I rather doubt. No, he says, we have won no battle, not even a skirmish. The enemy just backed off a bit. We woke up one morning, and they were gone. The hill we were supposedly fighting for was ours. Really, he says, it doesn't seem like both sides were fighting for the same hill. So what happened? Now, he says, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I think most of us have a pretty good idea what happened. The Ukraine-Russia incident makes clear the conditioning that COVID has accomplished over the population of the world. Suddenly, all of the focus shifted. Suddenly, a new enemy was in sight, much like enemies of old, at least an enemy we could see. It was quite actually, actually quite astounding how quickly all the profile photos on Facebook changed from I got vaccinated to the blue and yellow flag of Ukraine. And so he says, as we stand on our deserted COVID hill, waving our own flag and wanting the enemy to at least acknowledge how clever we were to see through their lies and subterfuge, we wonder where everyone has gone. Yeah, we shout, we've won. Well, he says, no, we haven't. And not only have we not won, we have lost big time. 
Sorry to break it to you. And he says, like I said, I think most readers of Off Guardian know this. Maybe you can share this article with those who don't even know we were in a fight. It's beyond the scope of this article to list all the things they have won and all the things we have lost. But he says, I'm going to take a stab at the ones that stand out to me. First of all, he says, I think it's important to point out the things many of us think we have won, like the rescinding of the mandated mask wearing is the first example. Most states, provinces, and even whole countries have removed mask wearing in public as a rule, law, or regulation, or whatever you want to call it. In Canada, this is true as well. However, you must still wear a mask on public transit, in medical facilities, and quite a few other places. Why? Well, that's a ha-ha question. There never has been a reason why, and there isn't now. Even as this restriction has been removed, in quotation marks, many people are still wearing masks everywhere. Now, he says, I'm not sure how it is in other parts of the world. But here in Canada, there's quite a large percentage of people still wearing masks, even those walking outdoors or riding alone in their cars. This is the first example of what they got. Blind obedience to the cause, even when the cause has officially been announced as being no cause at all. Now, the fear was created. The high morality of following the authority for the good of the people has been established. A superstitious effect follows the fear. Wear a mask the same way everyone wears a talisman to ward off evil spirits, although that's probably more effective. Soon people won't even know why they first started wearing them. It's just a thing you do, like shaking hands when you meet someone, which we no longer do. Now, of course, the normies will say, well, why not? Why is wearing a mask so difficult to do? Need I explain why? When it's used as a form of compliance to authority, when wearing one obliterates one of the prime ways humans communicate and socialize, when it's actually medically dangerous to wear one, and when there's absolutely no reason to, then we should get rid of them as soon as we can and should never have worn them to begin with. So the powers that be ought not or the powers that ought not to be, have won a very effective form of blind compliance, ready to implement it full force again with a snap of the finger. Not only are people still wearing them, it will take no effort at all to get a majority of the world's population to don them en masse again. Now, they've also won, and we have lost, a sense of unsubstantiated fear for our fellow human beings. Social distancing has forced us into an unconscious avoidance of other people. Now he says, I haven't seen much handshaking going on or even hugging. People now avoid each other, and I doubt if these avoidances are even conscious. This has established a deep sense of fear and loss of trust, which again, makes us all easily manipulated. It will only take small insertions in the culture through media to basically push us anywhere they want us pushed. Now, the breakdown of social psychology is clearly part of the agenda. And he says, I believe they can indeed count that one as a win, a big one. The implications of this sort of thing are unconscionable and range rather from a general disconnect from human interaction to massive unrest, impatience, and lack of tolerance. More violence, road rage, disputes, tribal dissonances, not to mention higher rates of depression, anxiety, drug use, suicide. If we think of Orwell's 1984 as any sort of a playbook for this agenda, we can see the foundations laid for many of the more atrocious aspects of Big Brother's world. The idea of continuous war raging somewhere in the world is certainly in place, along with the confusion of which side to be on at any given moment. The propaganda is relentless and leaves us all in a sticky, syrupy mess. 
hate is an all-powerful stimulator for extreme nationalism and compliance to a singular narrative. During COVID, we were trained to accept nothing but one clearly defined truth. Different perspectives were not allowed, as anything with a different view was immediately labeled misinformation, fake, and dangerous. So there are no second opinions anymore. Either a source of information is in line with the mainstream or is simply degraded as insanity, moronic, or anti-science. There is no gray, only black and white. During COVID, we learned through a very conscious manipulation that there was only one way to see truth, and that polarized thinking can apply to anything the narrative wishes to apply it to. First, all about COVID and vaccines, now all about Ukraine and Russia. Two very different events in nearly every way, yet each with one mainstream view that we must all be in alignment with. Now, the ease of applying censorship to nearly any situation is a huge win for them. Any contrary opinion has been all but obliterated. If information is labeled miss by the mainstream, it's blocked. Contrary ideas and opinions on social media, deleted. Those who are brave enough to speak out lose their jobs and their reputations are ruined. Once we start marching to this drum that anything that challenges the mainstream narrative is false, fake, misinformation, dangerous, or anti-science, we are quite literally walking into a totalitarian state. After COVID, this sort of censorship will be just that much easier to implement, and it will be that much easier to just go along with it, or worse, to advocate it. I mean, in more subtle areas, we see the foundation set for other agenda items like central bank digital currency, digital IDs, paving the way for that's been paved the way they've had the way paved for them rather by vaccine passports. And the ground they've acquired through covid manipulation is clear and substantial. Depending on how far down the rabbit hole you're willing to go. You know, we're also seeing the tiny tip of the iceberg with thousands of deaths and injuries undoubtedly caused caused by the vaccines. Probably the effect that the makers of the injections see as a minor annoyance when the major event could very well be millions of deaths spread out over generations. Now, if that's true, that's a big win for them and a big loss for us. So really, he says we have won nothing, at least yet. And the foundation has been poured for a structure we don't know the final shape of it but it's definitely going to be blocking our view of freedom and creativity the advice here is stay on that hill the battle has only begun do not give up whatever you do this is the brian hyde show a trusted voice of truth and light god gave me a gift I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Come, dive with me into a deep pool of clarity. Now, you can leave your clothes on. It's okay. It's, it's, it's nothing that uh, is going to require you to change. I'm inviting you to think as clearly and independently as possible about the events around us. And I do so simply because I believe that right now the greatest battle that is being waged on this planet is the battle for your mind. And if you don't have a sense that uh, there's, there's a tug of war taking place, well... First of all, I'm kind of jealous of you because once once you are aware of it, it's pretty hard to, to miss it. But 
You're going to become aware of it at some point simply because you're being told on so many different fronts. Ignore reality. Pretend that doesn't exist. I'm encouraging you to live in reality, remain tethered to reality. Whether you agree with me or not, just understand the battle for your mind is real. I want you to claim it as your own sovereign territory. And don't cede one inch of it to anybody who would try to manipulate you into thinking or believing a certain way. By the way, I've got some great sponsors here on the show. I'd like to uh, thank Dixie Chiropractic. This is DixieChiro.com. It's Dr. Ward Wagner. This is uh, one of my newer sponsors, but I want you to click on their website, look at what they have to offer. Bottom line here is if you or someone you know is dealing with pain, whether it's from car accident injuries or maybe a a bulging herniated disc or maybe it's uh, neuropathy, Dixie Chiropractic is there to help you. They've got some wonderful intro specials. For instance, if you're working with a bulging herniated disc, check out their $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage, You can just call the office, click on their link, and you'll see the phone number there. If you're dealing with neuropathy, how about the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage? Go to DixieChiro.com. When you're talking to them, please let them know that you heard about this on this program. Tell them Brian said to call you, and that's why we're talking. Well, if you find yourself currently obsessing over Russia, it's very possible that the official propaganda has sunk its hooks into your mind. Caitlin Johnstone explains how U.S. officials admit they're literally just lying to us about Russia. She says NBC News has a new report out citing multiple anonymous U.S. officials humorously titled, In a Break with the Past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. Now, the officials say the Biden administration has been rapidly pushing out, this is in quotation marks, intelligence about Russia's plans in Ukraine, that is low confidence or based more on analysis than hard evidence, or even just plain false in order to fight an information war against Putin. Why should that matter to us? Okay, because in so many words, that means the administration is lying. They're they're, they're stating things as fact which are not known to be fact, which are not verifiable. The report says that uh, toward this end, the U.S. government has deliberately circulated false or poorly evidenced claims about impending chemical weapons attacks and Russian plans to orchestrate a false flag in the Donbass to uh, justify an invasion. And Putin's advisors misinforming him or about Russia seeking arms supplies from China. Now, she has a, a a tweet here, which reads, PSYOPs in the U.S. targeting the public used to be illegal even though the way they got around it was to plant stories in the foreign press. But over the last five years, beginning with Russiagate and now Ukraine, it's clear that the U.S. public is fair game. And here's an excerpt from the article. This is from NBC. It was an attention-grabbing assertion that made headlines around the world. U.S. officials said they had indications suggesting Russia might be preparing to use chemical agents in Ukraine. President Joe Biden later said it publicly. But three U.S. officials told NBC News this week there is no evidence Russia has brought any chemical weapons near Ukraine. They said the U.S. released the information to deter Russia from using the banned munitions. It's one of a string of examples of the Biden administration's breaking with recent precedent by deploying declassified intelligence as part of an information war against Russia. 
The information has done so even when the intelligence wasn't rock solid, officials said, to keep Russian President Vladimir Putin off balance. End quote. So they lied. Now, they may hold that they lied for a noble reason, but they lied. They knowingly circulated information that they had no reason to believe was true, and that lie was amplified by all the most influential media outlets in the Western world. Here's another example of the Biden administration releasing a false narrative as part of its information war. Quote, likewise, a charge that Russia had turned to China for potential military help lacked hard evidence, a European official and two U.S. officials said. The U.S. officials said there are no indications China is considering providing weapons to Russia. The Biden administration put that out as a warning to China not to do so, they said. End quote. See, one of the empire, on the Empire's claim last week that Putin is being misled by his advisors because they're afraid of telling him the truth. NBC reports this assessment wasn't conclusive, based on more analysis, based more rather on analysis than on hard evidence. In fact, Kate, Caitlin Johnstone says, I actually made fun of this ridiculous CIA press release when it was uncritically published, disguised as breaking news by the New York Times. She said, breaking news, the most influential newspaper in the English-speaking world, routinely passes off CIA press releases as breaking news. Now, she says, we also had fun with the State Department spokesman Ned Price's bizarre February impersonation of Alex Jones, where he wrongly claimed that Russia was about to release a false flag video using crisis actors to justify its invasion. Other U.S. government lies uh, discussed in the NBC report were less cute. Quote, in another disclosure, U.S. officials said one reason not to provide Ukraine with MiG fighter jets is that intelligence showed Russia would view the move as escalatory. Now, that was true, but it was also true of Stinger missiles, which the Biden administration did provide, two U.S. officials said, adding that the administration declassified the MiG information to bolster the argument not to provide them to Ukraine. End quote. So the Biden administration knew it was sending weapons to Ukraine that would be perceived by a nuclear superpower as a provocative escalation. But it sent them anyway and then lied about it. Cool, cool, cool. Now, she says this NBC report confirms rumors we've been hearing for months. Professional war slut Max Boot said via the Council on Foreign Relations think tank in February that the Biden administration had ushered in a new era of info ops with intelligence releases designed not to tell the truth, but to influence Putin's decisions. Former MI6 chief John Sawyer, John Sowers, rather, told the Atlantic Council think tank in February that Biden's administration intelligence releases were were based more on a general vibe than actual intelligence and were designed to manipulate rather than to inform. Here's a tweet from Glenn Greenwald, an amazing interview with former MI6 chief with the Atlantic Council's Council's B. Judah, the whole gang present, where the intel goon admits that many Western intel leak media outlets are dutifully conveying aren't real leaks, but simply propaganda messages designed to undercut Putin. Now, in case you were wondering, no, NBC did not publish a major leak by whistleblowers within the U.S. government who are bravely exposing the lies of the powerful with the help of the free press. One of the author's articles, one of the article's authors, rather, is Ken Delanian, who in 2014 was revealed to to have worked as a literal CIA asset while writing for the L.A. Times. If you see Delanian's name in a byline, you can be certain you are reading exactly what the managers of the U.S. empire want you to read. 
So why are they telling us this now? Is the U.S. government not worried it will lose the trust of the public by admitting it's continuously lying about its most high-profile international conflict? And if this is an information war designed to get inside Putin's head, as NBC sources claim, wouldn't openly reporting it through the mainstream press completely defeat the purpose? Well, she says the answer to those questions is where it gets really creepy. And she says, I welcome everyone's feedback and theories on the matter, but as near as I can figure... The only reason the U.S. government would release this story to the public is because they want the general public to know about it. And the only plausible reason I can think of that they would want the public to know about it is that they're confident the public will consent to being lied to. I don't think she's wrong. She says the U.S. is ramping up Cold War aggressions against Russia and China in a desperate attempt to secure unipolar hegemony. And psychological warfare traditionally plays a major role in Cold War maneuverings due to the inability to aggress in more overt ways against nuclear-armed foes. foes rather. So now would be a time to get the thinkers of America's two mainstream political factions fanatically cheerleading their government's psi-war manipulations. Pretty scary stuff. I mean, if this continues to be accepted, Caitlin Johnstone says it will make things a lot easier for the empire managers going forward. Someone calls him out, hey, that wasn't true. Well, you knew all along that we were engaging in disinformation, you know, to get inside Putin's head. A lot of things being normalized right now. Dishonesty is just one of them. At least official dishonesty. Anyway, there's a link to the article in the show notes. You can find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to mention the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, one of my sponsors, and encourage you to get in touch with her if you are looking to secure a mortgage. But from a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the experience, the stability, and the clout to get you the loan you need without delay. In fact, even if you're looking to refinance your existing home loan, they can help. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, stop by 619 South Bluff Street, Towers 1 and 2. That's where you'll find Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, U.S. policymakers really want us to believe that they are the good guys. And at the same time, their actions are not exactly those of good guys. I've got a great article here from Pepe Escobar that says that this is why our officials are willing to sit back and watch Europe commit suicide. I'm used to facing some hard truths on a daily basis, but I'm telling you, his, his take on this is, it's, these are some real hard truths, so you've been warned. The subtitle of this article If the U.S. goal is to crush Russia's economy with sanctions and isolation, why is Europe in an economic freefall instead. Pepe Escobar says, the stunning, the stunning spectacle of the European Union committing slow-motion harakiri is something for the ages. Like a cheap Kurosawa remake, the movie is actually about the U.S.-detonated demolition of the EU, complete with the rerouting of some key Russian commodity exports to the U.S. at the expense of Europeans. Now, it helps to have a fifth-columnist actress 
actress rather strategically placed, in this case, astonishingly, astonishingly incompetent European Commission head Ursula von der Lugen with her vociferous announcement of a crushing new sanctions package. Russian ships banned from EU ports, road transportation companies from Russia and Belarus prohibited from entering the EU, no more coal imports, over 4.4 billion euros a year. In practice, that translates into Washington shaking down its wealthiest Western clients slash puppets. Now, Russia, of course, is too powerful to challenge militarily, at least directly, and the U.S. badly needs some of its key exports, especially minerals. So the Americans will instead nudge the EU into imposing ever-increasing sanctions that will willfully collapse their national economies, allowing the U.S. to scoop everything up. Cue to the coming catastrophic economic consequences felt by Europeans in their daily life, but not by the wealthiest 5%. Inflation devouring salaries and savings, next winter energy bills packing a mean punch, products disappearing from supermarkets, holiday bookings almost frozen. France's Le Le Petit Roi Emmanuel Macron, perhaps facing a nasty electoral surprise, has even announced food stamps like in World War II are possible. We have Germany facing the returning ghost of Weimar hyperinflation. BlackRock President Rob Capito said in Texas, for the first time, this generation is going to go into a store and not be able to get what they want. African farmers are unable to afford fertilizer at all this year, reducing agricultural production to, by an amount capable of feeding 100 million people. Zoltan Pulsar Former New York Fed and U.S. Treasury guru, current Credit Suisse Grand Vizier, has been on a streak stressing how commodity reserves, and here Russia is unrivaled, will be an essential feature of what he calls Bretton Woods 3. Although what's being designed by Russia, China, Iran, and the Eurasia Economic Union is a post-Bretton Woods. Pozar remarks that wars historically are won by those who have more food and energy supplies in the past to power horses and soldiers, today to feed soldiers and fuel tanks and fighter jets. China, incidentally, has amassed large stocks of virtually everything. Now, Pozar notes how our current Bretton Woods 2 system has a deflationary impulse, globalization, open trade, just-in-time supply chains, while Bretton Woods 3 will provide an inflationary impulse, deglobalization, autarky, hoarding of raw materials, of supply chains, and extra military spending to be able to protect what will remain of the seaborne trade. The implications are, of course, overwhelming. What's implicit, ominously, is that this state of affairs may even lead to World War III. So the Russian roundtable Valdai Club has conducted an essential expert discussion on what we at the cradle have defined as ruble gas the real geoeconomic game-changer at the heart of post, the post-petrodollar era. Alexander Lozev, a member of the Russian Council for Foreign and Defense Policy, offered the contours of the big picture. But it was up to Alexei Gromov, chief energy director of the Institute of Energy and Finance, to come up with the crucial nitty-gritty. Russia, so far, was selling 155 billion cubic meters of gas to Europe each year. The EU rhetorically promises to get rid of it by, by 2027 and reduce supply by the end of 2022 by 100 billion cubic meters. Gromov asked how and remarked, any expert has no answer. Most of Russia's natural gas is shipped over pipelines. This simply cannot be replaced by liquefied natural gas. Now, the risable European answer has been to start saving, as in prepare to be worse off and reduce the temperature in households. 
Gromov noted how in Russia, 22 to 25 degrees in winter is the norm. Europe is promoting 16 degrees as healthy and wearing sweaters at night. The EU won't be able to get the gas it needs from Norway or Algeria, which is privileging domestic consumption. Azerbaijan would be able to provide at least, at best rather, 10 billion cubic meters a year, but that'll take two or three years to happen. Gromov stressed how there is no surplus in the market today for the U.S. and Qatar LNG, liquefied natural gas, and how prices for Asian customers are always higher. So the bottom line is that by the end of 2022, Europe won't be able to significantly reduce what it buys from Russia. They might cut by 50 billion cubic meters maximum. And prices in the spot market will be higher, at least $1,300 per cubic meter. Now, an important development is that Russia changed the logistical supply chains to Asia already. That applies for gas and oil as well. You can impose sanctions if there's a surplus in the market. Now there's a shortage of at least 1.5 million barrels of oil a day. We'll be sending our supplies to Asia with a discount. As it stands, Asia's already paying a premium from 3 to $5 more per barrel of oil. On oil shipments, Gromov also commented on the key issue issue of insurance, saying insurance premiums are higher. Before Ukraine, it was all based on the free onboard system. Now, buyers are saying, we don't want the risk of taking your cargo to our ports. So they're applying the cost insurance and freight system, where the seller has to insure and transport the cargo. And that, of course, impacts revenues. An absolutely key issue for Russia is how to make <clears throat> the transition to China as its key gas customer. It's all about the power of Siberia, too. A new 2,600-kilometer pipeline originating in the Russian, <clears throat> excuse me, Bovanenkovo and Karasevi gas fields in Yamal in northwest Siberia, which will reach full capacity only in 2024. And first, the interconnector through Mongolia must be built. We need three years to build this pipeline. So everything will be in place only around 2025. Now, on the Yamal pipeline, most of the gas goes to Asia. If the Europeans don't buy any more, then we can redirect. And then there's the Arctic ING Project 2, which is even larger than, I'm sorry, it's LNG 2, which is larger than the Yamal. The first phase should be finished soon. It's 80% ready. An extra problem posed by the uh, Russian unfriendlies in Asia, Japan, and South Korea. LNG infrastructure produced in Russia still depends on foreign technologies. And this is what leads Gromov to note that the model of mobilization-based economy is not so good. But that's what Russia needs to deal with, at least in the short to medium term. So energy is playing a huge role right now. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to fix blame here. Say, well, Europe shouldn't have become so dang dependent on Russia in the first place. But it's pretty clear, no matter what sanctions are being thrown at Russia, Russia holds a number of the cards when it comes to energy. And I don't know if you remembered this or if you realized this, you probably did. But that energy is what the world runs on. We're feeling the pinch here in America. Everything costs more, starting with gassing up our own cars to the products that we see on the store shelves. I don't have a good feeling about this. Got to take a quick break. We'll come back to Pepe Escobar's article right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Before I go any further, I want to mention lifesavingfood.com. My longtime listeners know I have been a strong advocate of personal reliance, self-preparedness, and self-reliance and personal preparedness. Wow, that, uh, that came out a little convoluted. Food storage is a big part of that, though. I'm very happy to have lifesavingfood.com as one of my sponsors, and I'm encouraging you, no matter how prepared you are or how unprepared you happen to feel, click on the link, do a little bit of shopping. You don't, I'm not saying you have to buy something right now. This is not a high-pressure you know, impulse buy. But consider if there aren't some products or some things that could add to your sense of readiness and preparedness as well as to your personal peace of mind. The time to do it is now. Well, there are still good supplies in stock. And right now, everything you see on the website is still in stock. But there's no guarantee that that is going to be the case down the road. Supply chain breakdowns, higher prices, food shortages. Um, I'm sorry. I know that's that's scary sounding stuff. But that's the reality of what we are seeing starting to emerge in our world today. If you have the opportunity to act before it becomes a crisis, before everybody else starts to panic and I got to get some too, you're going to be wise for having done it sooner than later. Lifesavingfood.com. I just want to jump back to for a moment to Pepe Escobar's article about uh, Europe is slowly committing suicide. And it's not just the, the energy issues of, you know, now Europeans are being told, well, you're going to have to start wearing sweaters in the winter and keep your homes cooler and probably drive a lot less. I mean, like they already ride bikes a lot. I mean, that was one of the things I really loved when I was visiting Germany just a few years ago. People walked or they rode bikes almost everywhere. Amsterdam was insane. Got to be extra careful if you are driving not to, to hit somebody on a bike. But it's, gonna, it's not going to be by choice at this point. And everything is so much more expensive. My daughter who lives in Germany was just talking to my wife about what it was like to go grocery shopping this last week. This week, actually, prices jumped 22.5%. And, and you feel it, especially in uh, a society where... Storing food is, is not only discouraged, I believe it's actually actively illegal. You can't hoard food in, in the, the words of the German authorities. So people are just in the habit of, well, we go and we shop and we buy what we need, you know, on, on a given day. If I need bread, I go to the bread store that day. I do it every day. Need vegetables? Sure. We stop by the market and we grab vegetables. But when everything starts to get more and more expensive like this, it, it puts the pinch on people. Frankly, it makes me just a little bit nervous for her and her family. Now, there's also hypersonic geoeconomics. And uh, this is where Pepe Escobar talks about what China is doing. He talks about uh, the, the hypersonic missiles, which can reach Moscow in, in less than four minutes. The U.S. wants them in Ukraine, in Poland, Romania, Baltic States, Sweden, and Finland, in direct violation of the agreements in 1991 that NATO would not expand in Eastern Europe. Interesting. The U.S. does not have hypersonic worlds or hypersonic missiles now, but should in a year or two. And that is what Russia would consider an existential threat. So they had to go into Ukraine to stop this, at least according to, you know, Russian leaders. That's they they don't want hostile military bases on their borders. Next will be Poland and Romania, where launchers have been built and they're currently being uh, built in Poland right now. 
Now, Pepe Escobar says from a completely different geopolitical perspective, what's really telling is that this particular intelligence analysis happens to dovetail with Zoltan Pozar's geoeconomics. And the bottom line is the U.S. and NATO are totally belligerent. This represents a real danger to Russia. The idea that nuclear war is unthinkable, that's a myth. If you look at the firebombing of Tokyo against Hiroshima and Nagasaki, more people died in Tokyo than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And those cities, even after being nuclear, even being hit with nuclear weapons, were rebuilt. The radiation goes away and life can restart. The difference between firebombing and nuclear bombing is only efficiency. NATO provocations are so extreme, Russia had to place their nuclear missiles on standby alert. This is a gravely serious matter, but the U.S. ignored it. And I think it's just hubris. So if, if you're wondering, Brian, why are, you, why are you speaking ill of our brave leaders who can do no wrong? You know as well as I do, they can do plenty of wrong. But I think they are so filled with hubris and so determined that they will be the unipolar leaders of this world. They've allowed their, their, not just their mouths, but their actions to write a check that they cannot cash. I think Pat Buchanan put it best back in 2000 when he was running for president. And he says, you know, the U.S. stands at a crossroads. This is before 9-11 even. He says they can be, um, you know, a peacemaker in the world, or they can be the world's policeman who goes around night-sticking the troublemakers until they find themselves in a bloody brawl that they cannot handle. I certainly don't want to see that. I I would guess you probably don't either. But that seems to be the direction that we're heading. And again, we'll come back to the idea here of micro versus macro concerns. This is a macro concern in the sense that you and I really have no influence over, you know, this uh, global geopolitics. But we have absolute influence over what's happening in our own personal worlds and, uh, I think this is probably a good time to get ourselves not just, you know, temporarily squared away. Yes, food storage, water storage, you know, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's good. That's important. I think what we need to be focusing on right now is building that personal resilience. And I know this is going to make some people uncomfortable, but that personal resilience, in my experience, starts and ends with having spiritual resilience and spiritual awareness. People who are strong spiritually, who have a connection to their creator, are going to be able to weather the coming storms with much more confidence than those who are not tethered to something that, uh, that can help them, you know, keep from just being carried about by whatever the currents are doing. If that sounds like I'm telling you, go to church, I'm, I'm really not. I'm just saying being squared away requires more than just the physical preparations. Yes, we need to be more physically fit. We need to be more spiritually fit, mentally fit. Believe it or not, that's what this show is trying to promote on a daily basis. Take ownership of your mentality, your mental health, part of which includes unplugging. Even from this show, just turn it off. Go outside. Interact with people. Go do something for somebody else. And you'll see the world slowly start to look normal within a very short time. I know it's, it's a difficult task. And, and I, sometimes I despair that my, my need to be aware 
and to convey awareness to, to the people in my circle of influence sometimes leaves me feeling like I am just marinating in all the bad news. Certainly I want you to be aware, but I also want you to be aware that there are other good things that are happening in the world. In fact, I'm going to dovetail real quickly into a, a related topic. Right now, it's, it's very fashionable for us to think that, you know, everything that came before us was stupid and superstitious and evil. Got an article here from Jonathan Barnes. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. There is greatness in the past, despite what critical theorists try to tell us. And since we just had a critical race theorist appointed to the Supreme Court, I expect that this is only going to become more and more of an issue. Now, he says he grew up as one of eight pugnacious boys in a family of 12 children. And in a family that large, disagreements naturally arise. And Jonathan Barnes' dad would set up a boxing ring in the basement to empower them to settle their differences. The older brothers got a left-hand boxing glove. The youngers got two gloves. That was the entirety of our sire, the the Marquis of Bellevue's rules. He says maybe that's even why I became a linebacker later in my youth. Now, he says, I never attained greatness as a linebacker, nor have I attained greatness in other areas compared to many others who went before me. But because of those people, my family members, I can at least attempt to be great. And I'm going to tap the brakes here. I'll share the rest of this when we come back from our, our commercial break. But at the root of what I'm encouraging you to do, it's not so much to hide from the world and, you know, hunker down, you know, just hide under your bed until the storm has blown over. I'm actively encouraging you to rise to the personal greatness that is within you. And it's going to look different for every one of us. Some people will be out there in front of the TV cameras. Some people will be doing it quietly behind the scenes, but nevertheless making a very tangible difference in the lives of the people around them. But the thing you have to remember is that unlocking that personal greatness and living as a great person, not just signaling it on social media, it requires effort, real effort, as in there are no shortcuts. It requires being tested and proven in a way that is unique to you. And the universe knows how to test us on these things. You ever get the chance to study the hero's journey? You'll know, you'll recognize the pattern, probably in your own life and certainly in the lives of other people who have reached a, a degree of greatness. Bottom line is, you are needed. Your influence is needed. We'll come back to the article just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a brief acknowledgement here for one of my great sponsors, that being HSLAmmo.com. Spencer Worthington is the founder and president of HSL Ammo. And if you don't know Spencer, if you live in southern Utah and you've not had a chance to cross paths with Spencer, you really you really should just drop him a note or something. Stop by sometime and, 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 and tell him, you know, hello. He is a great guy. He Talk about somebody who is using his influence wisely and using it to, to benefit to the people around him and to build his community. That, uh, that's your guy. They also make uh, wonderful new and remanufactured ammunition something which uh, a lot of us find to be a useful and and uh, nice store of value, by the way. 
HSLAmmo.com. You'll find a link in my show notes. Click on it. And again, if you're out and about in southern Utah, particularly in the St. George area, and you encounter Spencer Worthington, let him know that his message reached your ears. So this article on intellectualtakeout.org by Jonathan Barnes. There is greatness in the past despite what critical theorists try to tell us. He talks about trying to attain greatness in his own life. And he says, you know, compared to other people in my family, I don't know that I would really be so great, but I can at least attempt to be great. And such a message, he says, runs counter to the rather hateful, pessimistic worldview that we know as critical race theory, or CRT. Such critical race theorists judge people inherently good or bad based on skin color. And they work to tear down societal structures in favor of an undefined utopian future. Now, he says, I've realized my own potential greatness is not constrained by the alleged sins of my ancestors. It's empowered by their exceptionalness. So rather than be mute while greedy hate mongers clumsily try to besmirch my kin with the help of self-serving government agencies, he says, let me tell you about my people. They were not a bunch of racists who succeeded through their white privilege, which allowed them to trample on the necks of others. No, they were simple people who aspired to greatness through hard work and upright living. And their examples are what should give us hope and inspiration to do the same. He says, according to my father's English and Scottish side of the family, we Barnes folk are a direct descendants of Edward, the Black Prince of England, a 13th century royal who first distinguished himself in battle as a teen. Now, whether or not it's true, we are confirmed descendants of several lairds and knights. He says, my family has not evidenced the Black Prince claim with research yet, but I don't believe I'm descended from a bunch of ancient con artists claiming royal lineage for hundreds of years. Some of my siblings aren't so sure. He says, my first English ancestor in America arrived here during the Great Migration in 1630. Another ancestor was a founding father of Amesbury, Massachusetts, founded in 1668. Yet another, Frederick Hawes, was a Union Army hero. He signed up shortly after the Civil War began, fibbing about his age since he wasn't quite 16. He served for four years in an artillery regiment, fought in several battles, and received field commissions. Rather, Now, he says, my mother's Croatian side of the family has only been here about 110 years, while her Irish side has been here for about 150 years. One of those Irish ancestors was a fisherman on the Great Lakes over 100 years ago. He wrecked his boat and lost everything when he was already over 50. He'd lost his first wife to death, remarried, and at 60 and 43, respectively, he and his second wife welcomed a baby boy, my Irish ancestor, who kept that line going, quite well, in fact, as my mother's Irish-American father was one of 12 children. One of my mother's tall Croatian-American uncles escaped the back-breaking drudgery of mining in Virginia. His father had come to uh, Minnesota as an immigrant by attending college and playing football. He married a bell from an old southern family. His brother fought for the U.S. in the Battle of the Bulge. His parents had been orphans as children. The father came to the country with nothing, sending for his wife and young daughter five years later. White privilege? Ha! He says, closer to my generation, Dad served a short stint in the Navy as a young man and then later served in the Army during the Korean War in the 1950s, spending his service time mostly in Germany as he was one of just two men in his company not to go to Korea. His self-employed contractor father died when Dad was 17, leaving a wife and six kids behind. Dad took the GI Bill route, and he and his mother graduated from college at the same time, he as an engineer and her a teacher. 
Now, he says, my parents only planned on having four children, but became committed Christians and decided to have as many children as the Lord would provide. I am the fifth child biblically named and dedicated by my father to the Lord. When the steel industry imploded from being dumb, fat, and happy in the 1980s and dad lost his job with U.S. Steel, mom started an in-home daycare, which she grew into a daycare center with a couple of locations away from our home. She was such a bleeding heart that many people took advantage of her daycare's long hours and many bilked her on pay for caring for their little ones. Structural racism? Phooey, he says. There are a lot of black and white kids who would still view my late mother as a sort of grandmother who they loved. She was very loving and beautiful. Everyone who knew her could see that. My ancestors may not seem all that great in worldly goods and achievements, but they were great in that they had meaningful existence, working hard, and living in a way that their descendants can admire. Young people need role models like that, and many of them are angry today because they lack such models of excellence. Writer Mark Bowerlin states in a recent article for American Greatness, quote, There is greatness to be enjoyed. There are talents to revere. The past contains wonders. He says, Without that belief, <clears throat> our 30-year-olds are disappointed, uncertain, pessimistic, and resentful. It's a natural response. They want a meaningful existence, and they look for it in false gods of social justice and the like, unable to find it where they should, in church, in tradition, in humanitas, in country, and in role models. End quote. So Jonathan Barnes says, My role models are in my own family. I learn from their examples every day. My siblings, for example, act nobly and put others first. They lead by example, patterning the good behavior they want to see in others. And it is this simple greatness, both in the past and in the present, that should inspire us and the younger generations to take heart and to follow their example. And he says, if you can't find such inspiration in your own family, then feel free to use mine. Now, if that sounds like a flex to you, I'm going to suggest maybe you're not seeing clearly what he's trying to do here. This is not about, see how much better my family is than yours. But I bet if you were to look into your own family history, if you really started to know the people who came before you, oh, you'll probably find a scoundrel or two. Every family has them. But you're going to find some truly great individuals. Maybe it's just because within the last couple of weeks, we, uh, we passed an anniversary. It's 26 years ago that uh, my grandfather passed away. And I never thought of Grandpa as a truly great man, you know, in, in the time. He was just, he was Grandpa. I loved him because he was Grandpa. And he loved me, and he loved to take me fishing. And he just, uh, he always had the coolest things. He was a woodworker, a clockmaker, um, a builder. So the, the guy had a really neat legacy, which I was very slow to appreciate until he was approaching the end of his life. And I was just revisiting his obituary. It, it popped up as a Facebook memory. My aunt had posted it on, on Facebook, and and I was uh, just recalling his life. And, you know, here I am 26 years down there, like half my life later, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, at uh, the life that he lived. And I have to admit, you know, in, in comparing, you know, what am I doing with my life to, to him? I'm like, I don't know that I've really accomplished that much. But then I have to remember, every one of us has a slightly different mission. It's unique to each one of us. And I look at my grandfather's uh, personal greatness, which, again, was never expressed in terms of, oh, yes, he was, uh, he was captain of the tennis team at Father's Country Club and all that. No, 
He was just a hardworking, good, honest man. And every time I look around and I see a clock hanging on the wall that he made or sit on a piece of furniture that he made, I'm reminded of the impact that he had on my life and so many other people's lives. I hate to get all philosophical, but in the end, I really believe that is the greatest measure of success. A good friend of mine passed away here recently, um, a a wonderful uh, martial artist, a guy who, uh, very young, you know, just in his early 50s, but um, died of a heart attack while he was training down in Brazil. Um, About a year ago, he had posted something on Facebook, and he said, the greatest flex is the number of people's lives you've impacted positively. And this was a guy who cut a very wide swath, and he really impacted a lot of people's lives, including my own, in a very positive way. All the other stuff, you know, the money you make, the the mansion you lived in, the cool cars you drove, or the toys you accumulated, that's all fine and dandy, but these things are very transitory. Even fame and fortune are temporary conditions. If you really want to get down to it, the greatest success you're going to see in your life, at least when you approach the end of your life, is going to be looking back over the course of your life and seeing the people whose lives were impacted positively because of you. And more often than not, that impact is going to come not because you did some brave, magnanimous thing, but because you were just a good person and a good influence in their lives. This is The Brian Hyde Show.